go ahead and get started. So hopefully we'll have some time <clears throat> to discuss together uh, an important subject. We're looking today at chapter 10 in our study of <clears throat> devoted to God's church. We're dealing with the topic, the subject of the Lord's Supper, and dealing with an important question. What happens when we come to the table? What happens at the Lord's Supper? Does anything happen? And for, uh, well, well, we'll pray and we'll talk about a couple different views of this and, and then put forward what we believe is, is the scriptural view of, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown to us by sending us your Son, an infinite and unmerited, undeserved a mercy that you have poured out upon us in his person and his work. We thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for the work of your spirit, giving us understanding, uh, guiding us into the truth that has been revealed by him and, and by your apostles. We thank you that we have your word as our certain, sufficient, and infallible guide. And we pray that you'd give us understanding and that our our minds and our hearts would be, would be full of, towards our Savior, and that you would increase our love for him and our love and communion with one another. We ask this for Christ's sake and for the good of all of your people. Amen. So we ask this question. Uh, Dr. Ferguson begins in chapter 10 with uh, a a couple of anecdotes, but then he, he asks about, he asks this question, does anything happen? at the Lord's Supper. When we come, and we do this every week, we do this at the end of every Lord's Day worship service, does anything happen? And there, there are various ways that this has been answered throughout history. Uh, if you've come out of, uh, as, as we did, out of a Southern Baptist church and out of um, kind of many of the non-denominational churches, the answer is nothing really happens other than what we do. That the Supper is a memorial. It's a way for us to commemorate and remind ourselves of what Christ did, but it is essentially only looking back. We look back to the, our Lord's sacrifice and, and all that is meant by the symbols, so they, they, they would understand the symbols in the same way, that the bread represents his body, the, the wine represents his shed blood, but it is only, in a sense, looking back. And it is kind of a memory device. You know, when you were a young child and you learned the... The English alphabet, you learned it by way of song. I won't sing it because then you'll be singing it all day. But you, you know, you, you learn, it's a mnemonic device. It's a way of learning something and memorizing something. And, and some have reduced the Lord's Supper to essentially a, a mnemonic device. It's a way of mem- remembering something. Well, that's, that's not exactly true. Or it's, it's, it certainly includes that, but it's more than that. Well, the, um, think of it on the spectrum. On the far other end of the spectrum is the heresy, and it is a heresy, of the Roman Catholic Church, that when they ask, when, when, when you ask a Roman Catholic, what happens at the supper? What happens is Christ, in a sense, is pulled down out of heaven and crucified again so that, his, so that the bread is transformed into his body so that when the priest breaks it, it is, it is not, not just symbolic, but they believe in actual re-crucifying of Christ. When the wine is poured out, it is not just a symbol, but that, his, that this wine actually becomes his blood, and it is poured out. The Lutheran position moderates that view a little bit, 
by saying they, they, they want to take in a very literal way, I think in a wooden way, when Jesus says, this is my body, the Lutherans will say, well, he means it is his body. Now, they don't, they're not going to say they're in the... So that's the, the transubstantiation, transubstantiation is the Roman view. The Lutheran view is consubstantiation. And, and a very simplified understanding of that is, is simply that the bread does become the body of Christ in a spiritual way. The blood becomes, or the wine becomes his blood in a spiritual way, and yet not re-sacrificing the Lord. Well, there is a golden mean <clears throat> that I think Paul presents to us in the Scriptures, and it is this. It is certainly a memorial of what Christ has done, but the Reformed view, Reformed Presbyterian and Baptist view, is that Christ is spiritually present in the supper, and yet bodily he remains in heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. Spiritually he is present with us. So it is not that nothing happens or that it is only us looking backward at his sacrifice. It is also us in real time, spiritually speaking, having participation and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. In our confession of faith, <clears throat> I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to read chapter 10, or part of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> but in chapter 30 in our confession of faith, entitled, Of the Lord's Supper, the first paragraph reads this way, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him, the same night wherein he was betrayed, to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself and his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in <clears throat> and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So already... Even in the first paragraph, we're seeing that this is more than just a memorial. This is more than merely or only looking back. But listen to some of the guardrails that are put in place. In paragraph 2, in, the ordinance, in, the, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. Now, why is it a problem <clears throat> for if someone takes the view that there is, an, there is an actual sacrifice taking place during the supper? What's the problem with that view? Matthew. Correct. It's saying that what happened at Calvary, the once and for all sacrifice. We read this in Hebrews, right? Christ once and for all made sacrifice for, for our sins, and then he sat down, never to be sacrificed again. So the problem with the Roman Catholic view is that Christ is sacrificed again and again and again. In fact, uh, many Catholic churches are open seven days a week, and the Mass is celebrated every day. Because the belief is you, you need that sacrificial death of Christ daily, again and again and again and again. Paragraph 2 continues, And as a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so 
the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Paragraph 3 says, The Lord Jesus has, in his, this ordinance, appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they, communicating also to themselves, or sharing also to themselves, to give both to the communicants, those who receive it. Let's go down to paragraph 5. The outward elements of this ordinance, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent. In other words, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So here they deal and distinguish themselves we distinguish ourselves from our Lutheran brothers and sisters. See, the bread and the wine remain truly bread and wine. There's no transformation that takes place. So we speak of these things figuratively. So when I, when, at the end of the supper, when I, when I hold the bread up and say, this is the body of Christ, we speak in figurative terms. Um, the, the, the bread remains truly and only bread. The wine remains truly and only wine. And yet figuratively, they represent the body of Christ. So paragraph 6, the doc, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, that's the Lutheran position, by, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. It overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions of gross idolatries. So it is, it, is, it is not a small error. So we have to understand, before we, before we begin the discussion of what happens in the Lord's Supper, we need to sort of, sort of constrain that discussion to what doesn't happen, what does not happen in the Supper. Now look at paragraph 7. This is, we're, we're going to go through, um, Dr. Ferguson highlights seven particular things. I think it was a helpful way of, of outlining this, so we'll, we'll use his outline here in a moment. But let's look at the language of our confession in paragraph 7 with respect to what happens in the supper. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements of this ordinance, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So there's an analogy here. In the same way that when we eat the bread and you you have the taste and even the crunch and and the texture of the bread, that is absolutely real. And, And just as real as that is Christ's spiritual presence with us. When, when you taste the wine and the bitterness of it hits your tongue and you, and you, you feel that the texture and the flavor of it, as real as that is, Christ is spiritually present with us in a manner that is every bit as real, but only in that spiritual sense. He does not appear to us bodily, either by a change of the substance or by being crucified again. 
But it doesn't mean it's only us looking back and recalling into our mind what he has done. The Spirit of the living Christ is at work in us, nourishing us spiritually upon his body and his blood. Uh, inwardly by faith, we, in the languages, we really and indeed feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits thereunto. So it's important to have those, those boundaries at the beginning of the discussion. Here's what's not happening, and then we can consider together what is happening. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It is a sharing. That word, and, and you may be familiar with the word, you've probably heard the Greek word kononia. Uh, I've even heard of churches named kononia. But it's the idea, it's often translated as fellowship, but it's the idea of sharing together. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is the bread that we drink, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? See, Paul's drawing on the Old Testament temple system. And when a bull was sacrificed, that bull was sacrificed on their behalf. There was, a, in that sense, a participation. All their sins symbolically went up upon that bull or upon that goat so that God received that and blotted out their guilt. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of, this, of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. <clears throat> I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he's making the argument, we, we cannot participate in the Lord's Supper and this, what he calls the cup of demons, because it really is a participation. It's not just a memory device. It's not just a memory aid. It's not us merely looking back and recalling to mind what Christ has done. There is an, there is an active spiritual participation in that. And Paul says it's incongruent. In fact, it's blasphemous to think that we can participate and sit at the same table with our Lord and be at the same table with demons at the same time. We can't do that. So, on to the question that we pose. What happens then when we come to the table? And working through the implications of what Paul has taught to us in 1 Corinthians 10. What are those implications? And Dr. Ferguson, again, I think it's very helpful. He gives us seven answers. And we'll go through these very quickly, so we have some time to, to discuss them. The first one is, is communion. This is that idea of participation. It's the idea of sharing. And he, and he draws a parallel to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
And, and of course, we often hear that verse in an evangelistic kind of context. Oh, the Lord is just standing, begging at your door. If you would just only open your heart to him, he's eager to come in. Well, that's not exactly what the verse is about. But there is a direct connection to what happens at the Lord's table. When did Jesus, Ferguson asked, when did Jesus ever sup with the Christians in Laodicea? In, in, in a physical bodily sense, the answer is never. But in a spiritual sense, he has. It's at the Lord's Supper. These words have often been used as an evangelistic text, says Ferguson, as an appeal to people who are not yet Christians. But they were first spoken to a church of professing Christians. They needed to sense their sinfulness and failure, the lukewarmness of their hearts, and repent. They needed to come near to Christ all over again. But that is exactly what we are invited to do at the Lord's Supper. Jesus is describing what we will experience as we come to him in faith while we are receiving the bread and the wine. Will we sup with him and he will sup with us? It's just a beautiful image, isn't it? The idea of Christ saying, come and eat with me. Let me come in and eat with you. Open your hearts to me by faith and repentance. And, and, and let's anticipate together the day that you, will, that you will sit with me in sinless perfection and eat with me. So the first answer is communion. We, we have a sharing with Christ in this way. It, again, it's spiritual, not bodily, but it anticipates a bodily participation that will happen in glory. The second thing that happens is reconciliation. Ferguson again, he says, Christ makes himself known to us in a particular way at the table in the breaking and eating of bread and in the drinking of the outpoured wine. It is on Jesus himself as the one who was sacrificed for us, who died for our sins under God's judgment and who now, and who is now risen and glorified, but who brings us into his presence near to him to have fellowship with him through the Spirit. So as we come, as the Spirit of Christ is, is, is reminding us through the preaching of his word and, and through those other ordinary means that he's given to us, we are aware of our sinful condition. We are aware even of those particular ways in which we have sinned against God. And yet here Christ nevertheless offers to us an invitation, come and eat with me, come and be reconciled again and again and again to me. Not because we need to be saved again, not because we need to be justified again, but because we need that ongoing work of grace in our lives, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And he says that's exactly, Ferguson again, that's exactly what happens at the Lord's Supper. He took our sin and judgment so really and fully that he cried out on the cross, I thirst. We are invited to sit with him and hear him say, no longer be hungry. No longer be thirsty. Here, eat this bread. Drink this cup. Eat with me. Drink with me. Your hunger and your thirst will be gone. Everything is fulfilled in me. So again, Ferguson says, just as the Lord's Supper expresses our reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, it also expresses our reconciliation one to another. So we have this, we have a, a, a vertical component that's primary, but we also have a horizontal component. It also expresses our reconciliation to one another. This is the reason Christians in antiquity greeted each other with the peace, the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
And one of the real signs that we have experienced anything Christ offers to us at the table is that when we rise from it, we want to love fellow Christians who surround us and be reconciled to any of them from whom we may have become estranged. In this way, the Lord's Supper melts hearts, encourages us to forgive others, and creates a wonderful, fresh spirit of fellowship. When we come to the table and we, and we have this, this, the Spirit of Christ working in us to reconcile us and reminding us of our reconciliation with Him, and we are also reminded that we, have, we are, through His body and blood, we are unified with all other brothers and sisters. We ought to look to our left and to right and say, in my relationships out of order, within the body of Christ. And because I'm in union with him, I want to be more and more unified to my brothers and sisters, to those brothers and sisters under my own roof at home, to those in my, in my, in my local fellowship, and then extending out from there. So that reconciliation is first with Christ, but it ought, to, it ought to have the effect, the consequence, of causing us to be reconciled to other believers as well. There's a third thing that happens here. And again, I'm using Dr. Ferguson's outline Uh, The third thing that happens in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. This is a proclamation. It 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 is the Word of God in symbolic form, in picture form. In the second commandment, God forbids his people from making graven images. God communicates with his people by means of words. Because those words are objective and they they carry the freight of truth that ordinarily pictures cannot do. But Christ has, under the New Testament, given to us two pictures. There are two pictures that he says, "This is do this in worship. We are not to use other pictures for the sake of worship. But the Lord's Supper and baptism are two pictures that he has given to us. The baptism, of course, is a picture of being buried with Christ in death and being raised up to walk in newness of life. And the bread and the, the wine serve as pictures of his body being laid down freely for us. He's being crushed for our iniquities and his blood being shed and poured out for the remission of our sins. He says, this is why some Christians have spoken of the supper as a visible word. In the supper, what, what Christ has done for us is proclaimed in symbols, bread broken, wine outpoured. Here, the gospel is being proclaimed in dramatic form, as our forefathers used to say, not only to ear gate, but to eye gate. Kind of a bunionism, isn't it? Not only to ear gate, but to eye gate. And, and so we, we ordinarily, we receive the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But in the, in the infinite wisdom of our triune God, we also have the word that comes to us through eye gate in the form of the Lord's Supper and baptism as well. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul repeats the instructions that he received from the Lord. And then in verse 26, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Ferguson points out that some have taken that that verse to mean, well, that means that there always has to be preaching with the Lord's Supper. And, And I think there certainly should be, but that's not what that verse communicates. The verse is actually teaching that the act of the Lord's Supper is a de facto proclamation. It's a word in pictures. A fourth thing that happens is a benediction. A benediction. What is a benediction? What is a benediction? It's a word of blessing. It's a word of blessing. Paul calls the cup the cup of blessing that we bless. We see that back in verse 16 of chapter 10. 
the cup, which is a symbol and expression of blessing, is also a benediction. Now, what, what does it mean that it, this is a benediction? If we comprehend what is entailed in us understanding this sacrifice, when we eat the bread, we are, again, not physically, but not bodily, but spiritually feasting upon the, the Christ who physically laid down his body. He really did become a man. Not as the, the docetist in ancient heresies taught that he just merely appeared to be human. Or not that the Gnostics taught that he, he didn't actually take on human flesh because that would have been evil. No, our, our God-man, Jesus Christ, was fully God and fully man, and that in bodily he died. He really died because he had to as a sacrifice for our real sin. And as, as, we, as, as we receive his bread, he is blessing us in the sense that he says, I've already died so that you don't have to. I've died in your stead. My blood has already been shed to purify your sins because you cannot and would not do that for yourself. So Ferguson says it this way. He said, Christ drank the contents of the cup, the wrath of God against the world's sin. He did so for us because of this. He was able to offer the cup of blessing to his disciples and now also to us. As we come to the table then, we know that the cup of God's curse upon our sin has been drained to its last bitter dregs. It is empty. Now we are being graciously offered the cup of blessing in its place. No wonder the words of the psalmist have often been used at the Lord's Supper. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So as we eat and drink. We are receiving a blessing from the Lord. He's saying, here, take this and drink this. It's not the cup of wrath you deserve. It's a cup of blessing that I give to you. Eat this bread. This isn't, this isn't the bread that symbolizes the just judgment due on your body. This is the bread that symbolizes Christ died in your stead. He died in your place. So we receive a blessing and a benediction in this. Fifthly, fifthly, what, what happens at the Lord's table? What's well, consecration? What, is, what does the word consecration mean? To be set apart, and, and particularly set apart for a holy use, or for, for, a, for a, a noble or holy use. In, in the world of, of maybe secular politics, something could be consecrated. In the old world, something may be consecrated for the, for the royal use, or for the king's use. But in, in spiritual terms, particularly in Christian terms, it's consecrated for God's use, for holy use. Here, as we come to the supper, we are reminded of whose we are. This is, this is a symbol of our being possessed by another, our being owned by another. We come to the supper, we are reminded you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. What was the price? The blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reminder, I am not my own. I belong to another. This is what he has given for me. Ferguson says, it is also the choice we are called to make every time we sit at the Lord's table and receive the bread and the wine. Will you live entirely and exclusively for the one who died for you or under the influence of the world that has rejected him? Every time we come to the table, we're confronted with that reality. 
You can live for the one who bought you, or you can live for the world that wars against him. Ferguson goes on, if we eat and drink the presence of Christ, in the presence of Christ, we are telling him and each other that we have made that decision already. So as we come forward, as we file down the middle aisle and we, we each take a piece of bread and we take the cup of wine and we return to our seat, we are all testifying to one another, I've already made that decision. And I'm recovenanting. I'm reminding you and me and everybody here that that's who I am and that's the decision I've made. What we see at the table encourages us. Ferguson goes on, bread to be broken, wine to be poured out. He died for me and I will give my life to him. And we make that choice knowing the blessing of the presence of Christ with us at the table. It's amazing, isn't it? So sometimes it's helpful for us to step back. And I think Ferguson's outline has been really good to think through what all happens here. Because you know, one of the objections, we, we observe the supper every week. And I've heard a, a number of objections over the years to churches who, who observe it less frequently, monthly or quarterly or something like that. Um, usually among Reformed churches, there's a greater frequency. You know, I grew up in a, in a or not grew up, but, but when I came to faith in Christ, it was in a Southern Baptist church that it was two or three times a year, whether we needed to or not, we did the Lord's Supper, right? And, and it was that sort of irregular, special occasions kind of thing. But the objection sometimes to doing it every week, as we do, is it becomes commonplace. Well, it'll just be taken for granted. I, I don't think that the, the objection... Um, necessarily has merit, but it potentially does. Because can't we all admit we could just get into a, a rhythm and, and just go through the motions? Uh, our, our hearts are, are deceptive and, and often cold and dull, and we can become just, this can become a commonplace thing. Just as singing and praying and hearing the Word of God preached could also be common and, and ordinary things, and we don't give our full attention to them. So the Lord's Supper reminds us. So that comes, brings us to number six, an anticipation. Anticipation. When, when, we, when we come to the table, it is not only us looking backward, but also it is not only just us in the moment receiving this blessing from the Lord and identifying with God's people, but it's also us looking ahead. It's us self-consciously, deliberately looking forward to our full claiming of the promises of Christ. One day, our Lord Jesus has promised to return to cause us to be glorified, to, 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 to give us bodies like his, bodies which will no longer be tempted to sin. Both body and soul, if we have already died, our body and soul will be resurrected and combined back together, rejoined together. We anticipate this. The Lord's Supper, Ferguson said, is a foretaste of what is yet to come. The invisible presence of Christ with us assures us of the glory that his visible presence will bring. Although we do not see him, says Peter, we love him. But one day we will see him face to face, and then there will be no bounds to our love and joy. 1 Peter 1, 8, 1 verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We anticipate the coming of our Lord and the making of all things new. So as we come 
And I hope when we come that our consciences are tender before the Lord and we are reminded of, of the sin that remains in us. But when we come, let's not come with a hopelessness regarding that sin. Let's come with the eyes of faith to see one day, by the Lord's power and authority, that sin will no longer cling to me. One day, that sin will be, will be gone for eternity. And I will have the absolute freedom that I don't presently enjoy, but I'll have the absolute unencumbered freedom to worship Christ without even the threat of sin overtaking me. Ferguson, again, think of the Lord's Supper as a wedding rehearsal dinner. And he gives this really uh, cool illustration. I didn't really realize this. He said in the, in the UK, the night before a wedding, it's often time for the bride and groom to, to be apart. And they each go to their own respective families and enjoy dinner with their, kind of this last night with their uh, nuclear family. But as we know, in the, in the US, the tradition is, is different. There's a rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding. And, and traditionally the expenses borne by the groom's parents, by the groom's father. And Ferguson points to that. He's an Englishman. I think he tips his hat to the Americans here. He says, think of the Lord's Supper as a wedding rehearsal dinner at the expense of the groom's father. The next thing on the calendar is the return of the Savior in the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've never thought about that symbolism before. The next thing on the couch, but, but for the moment, we are guests at a rehearsal dinner. The groom is present. The church is his bride. The father of the groom undertakes to provide everything that will give us joy as we look forward to the wedding day that is coming. Saints, there is a tomorrow promised to us. Uh, there may not be one on this earth promised to us, but there is a heavenly tomorrow promised. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, if you are in Christ, is the day of feasting. Tomorrow, if you are in Christ, is the day of the wedding. So there's an anticipation that comes with the Lord's Supper. And finally, there's a place of self-examination. Um, this self-examination has multiple levels. What it is not is, is a sort of morbid scrutiny of, of our own sin and to determine have we mortified our flesh sufficiently this week in order to deserve to come. Have we managed to avoid that besetting sin to a sufficient degree that we should come to the table? Or is it that, no, I, I'm evaluating myself knowing that I am resting in the unmerited grace of Christ, that I am resting in his all-sufficient provision for me. So each person, Ferguson says, who comes must examine himself and come discerning the body. We see that in verse 29 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Paul might be speaking here about understanding the meaning of the bread and wine. So do we discern the body? Are we, are we actively discerning what do these elements mean? What are they pointing toward? And recognizing that they come to us as an expression of the presence and love of the Savior who died for us. So that's one possible understanding of the text that says, in order to come worthily means to come discerning the body. Or, Ferguson says, the word may mean that we need to realize that at the supper we are gathered as one body. So to discern the body means to sort of look around and say, we are all one body of Christ. We need to discern that fact. And therefore, to be alienated from each other is to be alienated from Christ. So what's the answer? He says, in one sense, each implies the other. 
in either case, the danger is that our lives contradict what is being proclaimed in the Bible. So it's a both and. We, we look around, we discern, I, I, am, I am not my own, but I also don't stand before Christ on my own. I, I, am, I am part of a body of Christ. It gives me mutual privileges and responsibilities. But I also, I come discerning the body of Christ, that it is his body. It is, his, it is, it is the sin that rested upon him at his crucifixion that is my righteousness. That is, the, that is the means of my cleansing. His, his body willingly, willingly laid down, his blood shed, and also, as I discerned the bread and the cup, that body that was crucified and went into the grave isn't there anymore. He's been raised. And to discern his body means I've been raised with him. And with all the privileges and the responsibilities that go with that, I have been raised with Christ. I am a new man. I am a new creature. And discerning the body is a reminder of that. As we come to the tables, we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we are reminded, I'm a new creature. The old man is dead. As Paul says in in Romans 6, we need to reckon ourselves. The old King James, reckon yourself dead to sin. So I thought those were were very helpful things to think about with respect to the Lord's Supper. Communion, reconciliation, proclamation, benediction, consecration, anticipation, and self-examination. What stood out to you? Uh, Something maybe that you haven't thought about with respect to the Lord's Supper before, or something that was helpful to you you as you meditated upon this? Matthew. Could be. Could be. Anything else? Andrew? That's right. And, and that if, if you are truly in Christ, you don't fear a knock of the Lord on your door. This is a friend who knocks, not a foe. Even, even when we have sinned and we know we have sinned and the Lord knocks on the door, that is not the time to, to lock it and keep him out. That is the time to say, Lord, come in. I need you now more than ever. I, I need your grace. I need the mercy that you have promised to me. You have covenanted to me. By, by, by your own merit, not by my own, you have promised to perfect me. Will, will you now be faithful to complete the good work that you've begun in me because I'm doing everything I can to stop that good work? You have those days? And it, it, is, it, is, it is, in a sense, metaphorically, to open that door to recognize Christ does have, number one, the authority, but he also has the love to come through that door and to eat with sinners. Our Lord dines with sinners. And, and the, 
the fact, and Paul reminds us, and it's not a small thing that he reminds us, it's on the very night of his disciples' betrayal is when our Lord instituted the supper, reminding us that he's a friend of sinners. And that so sometimes we think, I've betrayed the Lord, I can't eat. Well, that's when he instituted the supper, was amongst, amidst those who would betray him. Our Lord knows how to deal with rebels. Brian. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. The, the strength that's in the ordinary and in the simple, that by God's design and, and wisdom he's given to us. You know, you know I, I, I like to make sawdust and like to work with wood. And years ago, I got to take a, a, an all-day class at, at a, a place that was teaching old-world traditional carpentry methods. And they're not opposed to machinery and, and those kinds of things, nor am I. But one of the things that, that was helpful was to go back to some of the very basics and fundamentals and, that, and to see how strong and how some very simple kinds of joints, things that could be done with hand tools, they were, it took time, it took discipline, it took work, it took a cultivation of skill, but things that you could make will live longer than I will live will be around for hundreds and hundreds of years because of the strength of that simplicity. Rather than all the kind of complicated things and, and um, even to the complex chemical equations involved in adhesives and all kinds of stuff, you don't need any of that. Some of these things, there wasn't a screw or a nail or glue anywhere in them. And yet they could endure for generations. And I think about that, the, the way that our Lord has designed um, his ordinances. They're simple but they're strong, but they require discipline. They require a cultivation of skill. They require a commitment from us. Those ordinary means of grace, um, the, the preaching of the word requires an attentiveness. It, it, it's, it requires a skill, a growing skill, a growing discipline to learn how to listen to a sermon and how to meditate upon God's word, how to pray. I mean, uh, it, it, we, we teach our children very young. We want to teach them how to pray, but it's a skill, isn't it? And even as an adult, we're hopefully we're still growing. And, and not because we're, we're growing in, in our ability to be more eloquent and impress God with our words, um, improve our sentence structure. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the, the commitment of praying and the commitment of, of the skill of humbling ourselves before the Lord. 
And, and the supper is no different. Something very simple. It's broken bread, wine poured out, we eat and we drink, we sing a hymn. It's not complicated. But even in just a short period of time, we've, we've unpacked this seven-point outline from Ferguson that is, is very helpful for us to meditate upon. There's far more going on here than what immediately meets the eye. And the strength that exists in that simplicity uh, requires a cultivation of skill, requires a, a commitment on our, on our behalf to fully realize uh, all the benefits that God has given to us. Matthew. Well, that's an interesting point, because even if you go into a Roman Catholic church or a Lutheran church, what's, what is in the center of the front? The, the, the altar, the Lord's Supper, is what's central, not the pulpit. So even the architecture of the Reformed churches was, was intentional. It was to put the Word of God front and center. And because the Word of God was necessary for us fully to understand and receive the Lord's Supper, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Correct. Or even that we shuffle one out and put another one in or something. Yeah, it's, it's, this is the, the Word of God exists above uh, all, all things. It is because it's by the authority of the Word that we're able to do this. Yeah. It's a great point, yeah. And, and how subtle those other idols are, aren't they? If they came dressed as the big bad wolf, we would recognize them, right? Amen. Good point.
it's, it's yeah. That, I haven't thought about it that way. It was kind of ne- Nehemiah. You know, there, there were the low parts in the walls where he set the guards, right? And, and, and the Lord, in a sense, helps us set the low part, set, set a guard at the low part, our eyes. Yeah, it's good. Justin, will you pray for us? Thank you, brother.